Hello and welcome to The Shovel, a podcast brought to you by Property Leaders Brisbane, an independent and vibrant community open to professionals working in the property and construction industry. The Shovel is a natural extension of the conversations we have at our events where we share and debate ideas and inspire positive change in our city. This season of The Shovel focuses on our theme for 2021, Brazilians. Welcome to The Shovel, where this season we're talking about the resilience of Brisbane. I'm Matthew Mackey, National Director from Arcadis and Chair of Property Leaders Brisbane. And today, my guest is Ross Elliott, a titan of the property industry. He's the Director of Suburban Futures, the Chair of the Lord Mayor's Better Suburbs Initiative, and he's also the Chair of the Urban Land Institute. And that's before we even get into his former roles. So, welcome, Ross. Thanks for joining us this morning. Thanks, Matt. I don't think Titan is quite appropriate, but I'll let you get away with that. Well, I, I thought I'd see you blush, so that's fine. So, why don't we just kick off? Why don't you tell us a little bit about Suburban Futures and the Lord Mayor's Better Suburbs initiatives? Okay, well, Suburban Futures started, must be about four years ago. Back then, it was called the Suburban Alliance. And it began because a number of people in the industry came to me frustrated at what they saw as an overemphasis on the infrastructure and amenity priorities of the inner city and their difficulty in getting any level of similar attention at a wide range of suburban centres. So the more we started to look at it, this we realised there certainly was an issue there and the Suburban Alliance was formed with a focus almost entirely on providing best practice research case studies uh, and provocative thinking to, I guess, tune people's minds to think that if we've achieved so much with urban renewal, mainly inner urban renewal, uh, and we have a fantastic track record there, there's no question of that, surely we've learnt a thing or two about how to do it well, and surely it's time to apply that to suburban centres, many of which are run down, many of which contain fewer jobs now than they once did, many of which offer very significant opportunities. And in a growing region like Brisbane, it makes no economic or planning sense to put all of your eggs into one basket. It makes more sense to cultivate organically those opportunities in suburban centres so that more of us can work closer to where we live rather than consigning us all to these very long, costly uh, commutes to a centralised economy. So that was the message, if you like, of Suburban Alliance, now Suburban Futures. The Lord Mayor, when he was Deputy Mayor, uh, attended a couple of our conferences. We had experts from MIT and Boston and other places speak. Uh, and I think the Lord Mayor quickly got the message that this was important for Brisbane and hence he then formed the Better Suburbs Initiative and asked me to chair it. So that's been in place now for about a year and we're looking at a number of centres and precincts across Brisbane and just exploring how other opportunities might help turn those places around. So what are some of the examples of that? Have you got any examples of like where, it's, where that kind of thing has actually worked, been developed and worked quite well and, and some ideas of where it almost needs to happen? Well, I think the one uh, example we've got here in Brisbane that a lot of your listeners would be familiar with is Nanda. And Nanda, going back 20 years ago, was, to put it bluntly, it was a shithole. There's no other way to describe it. It, it, it. All of the traffic funneled through the main road, which came through the village. The pubs were run down. You could almost be guaranteed 
you know, a fist fight there every night of the week <laughs> at a certain hour. I mean, it was it was a rundown centre. There were a lot of vacancies, uh, and it was clearly a typical old community in decline. Now, what happened with Nunda was the state government funded the bypass, which alleviated the traffic congestion through the village. That was about $55 million in $2,000. The council contributed about 4 or $5 million through the better the SKIP scheme, the Suburban Centres Improvement, so street lighting, trees, shade, widened footpaths, that sort of thing, nice place-making initiatives. But most importantly, the council released a lot of the planning breaks, the zoning breaks, which prevent things from happening. So what followed, that total investment of about $60 million, has been about $800 million of private capital has gone into Nunda, and the whole place has turned around. It used to be somewhere you were embarrassed to admit living near. It is now <laughs> a place that is apparently desirable. People yeah. want to get close to Nunda. So you look across the region and say, well, what other centres are there? like Nunda, and there are plenty. I and mean, I would nominate Chermside as Nunda on steroids, potentially. Mm. Uh, but likewise, the cost of remediating the problems of Chermside uh, are not going to be $50 million. Mm. You know, uh, It's going to be a heck of a lot more. And outside of Brisbane, I know we had a chat about this beforehand, Matt, Cleveland, the Cleveland Town Centre, mm. seems to me one of those business centres that was once thriving. I wouldn't say there's tumbleweeds blowing down the street there now, but it's not anywhere near its potential yeah. as a local business centre. So what are the opportunities uh, for businesses to locate there? Why aren't businesses exploring uh, some of those locations? Is it infrastructure? Is it planning regs? Is it cost? Is it what, you know, what are the reasons? Well, I think that's what we need to explore and learn more about. Yeah, okay. So I suppose just looking at the example of Nunda then, I suppose the, you know, the question that immediately comes from that is that if that has been so successful in terms of what has been a relatively minimal level of spend for a massive amount of improvement. Why hasn't that just been copied and replicated, and replicated elsewhere? Well, it's a very good question. I think part of the motives of, of forming Suburban Futures was that we also realised that looking across the policy landscape and looking across the industry advocacy landscape, there was a sense of being embarrassed about the suburbs or or needing to sort of apologise for, for the suburbs. So I keep saying suburbia is not a condition, it's not an ailment, it doesn't need, you know, it's not a disease, it doesn't need to be treated like one. Uh, so there's been a long history, I guess, of looking down our nose uh, at suburbs and not valuing those opportunities as highly as the city centre. And many of the industry groups, and I've been involved with a couple of them, um, still am through the ULI, uh, there has, I think it's fair to say, been a preoccupation with all things inner city and we simply haven't bothered to spend the time or the capital in some of these suburban centres. Now, the tragedy right now, I think, is that some of the fastest-growing population centres uh, in south-east Queensland, which are actually outside the Brisbane city boundary, but you're talking Logan, Ipswich, Moreton Bay, to a lesser extent Redland, these are the areas that under the SEQ regional plan are being tasked with the very high rates of growth that they are, but under the same government state budget year in, year out, they receive very low levels relatively of capital spending support. So we're asking them to accommodate all the people. We're not providing the infrastructure, we're not providing the capital to improve the amenity of those areas, and nor are we assigning them with uh, sufficient jobs. So if you look also at the SEQ regional plan, it proposes very high rates of growth in population, but very low rates of growth in jobs. Mm. So we're effectively planning that these will become dormitories commuting to a city centre. Now, I don't think that's happening anyway. I think that 
trend reversed uh, a long time ago, but in the minds of some very centralist-minded mm. planners, uh, that's still a mandate that they want to impose. Yeah. Uh, so it'd be remiss of me then to not mention the dreaded C word, uh, COVID. We've obviously seen the impact of the pandemic in terms of where people work and how they work, etc. has had a massive impact on, on, you know, on all sectors, not just the construction industry and the property industry. So do you think that that, that kind of impact of something that nobody had really forecast and nobody had really understood the impact of it, do you think that's now going to change minds about where we should be spending our money when it comes to suburbs? Well, no, no one saw it coming, obviously. Mm. No one could. Mm. I mean, I walked just on my way here this morning. I, I looked at everyone walking the streets with their masks on and I thought, you know, imagine three years ago if you had suggested that that was possible. Uh, it would have sounded like a dystopian nightmare. But, yeah, yeah we're managing to muddle through. Mm. I think what COVID has done is accelerate a bunch of pre-existing trends. And if you look at what was happening in the US by way of example... Uh, a number of their experts, Bill Frey from the Brookings Institute, Egg Glazer from Harvard, Alan Berger from MIT, they've all noted, Jed Colco, who's now been appointed by President Biden as head of the Department of Commerce, uh, Jed spoke at our conference here a couple of years ago, they've all noted that the trend of suburbanisation, uh, particularly in jobs as much as people, was underway long before COVID, but COVID hit the accelerator button and I think the same thing has happened here where that, that drift to suburbia, not, and I'm not talking the relocating jobs, it's not as if uh, prior to suburbia office workers were moving from CBD to suburbia, but what was happening was different types of jobs were growing in suburbia and they were growing faster than white-collar office worker jobs, particularly health and education. They're the two fastest-growing industries in the country, along with construction, and all three of them tend to happen in suburban places because that's where they belong, you know, that's mm. where people need them. So that's changed the focus about the balance between inner cities and suburbia. I see a lot of opportunity around health and education as two pillars on which a lot of suburban renewal could be built. Uh, not just major hospitals, but everything from large medical centres to day surgeries, and also in particular schools. We tend to think of schooling only in terms of state school systems and plonking big schools for a thousand students, but there are myriads of schools out there with you know, maybe only 100 students and they're struggling to find locations that, that they can move into. So there's any number of uses for space in suburban centres for those industries. So it was, a, it was a trend that was underway beforehand. It's accelerated now. I think some of the commentary about death of the CBD and all that is grossly exaggerated mm. because the pendulum always swings back. Uh, but it's not going to swing back to where it was before. I think we, we must all acknowledge that. Uh, I'm not a fan of the whole work from home mm. thing. The kitchen table is not an office. Uh, and surely we'll get sick of that. Yeah. But people will be looking for, I think, opportunities to work in places that do not require a long and costly commute that uh, provide them with a lot more local uh, amenity, a lot more quality time and time to concentrate as well. And the I, CBD I, I, is changing too, though. I mean, yeah. that, that that is a an organic change that was underway before COVID and probably being accelerated that you're increasingly seeing it regarded not just as a place for office towers for nine to five office workers. Back in the day that used to happen, the city was dead at five o'clock mm. uh, because there was nothing else going on. Well, now there's restaurants, there's hotels, entertainment centres, Brisbane Live, uh, it's a logical place to put it, art galleries, theatres, mm. uh, housing. The CBD is in fact the biggest and most mixed of all mixed-use centres uh, 
in the state. Mm. Uh, the only thing we don't have probably is an abattoir or heavy industrial uses, but that, yeah. pretty much everything else <laughs> is here. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's um, I think when you when you particularly when you look at stuff like uh, when Queens Wharf and that that finishing that's going to change the dynamic of the CBD again. You've got the precincts around Cross River Rail as well. When they start moving forward in the next few years, that's going to change the CBD. So there's all these different things that are going to change the CBD dramatically. But you know, I've regularly commented on the post-COVID world and and particularly after six months of last year, 2020. Um, when we're in those periods of lockdown and businesses suddenly started thinking, and usually the, the finance directors of those businesses were thinking, hang on, we could reduce our corporate footprint because everyone's going to be working from home. And I always find that very, very bizarre that corporates were willing to make that kind of massive change to their business portfolio without knowing the full impact on what was effectively at that point a six-month pilot mm. test more than anything else and there's still this whole thing about workforce culture and you know they're talking about the, the great resignation um, mm. and all that kind of thing so there's a lot of dynamics still to play out that will impact suburbs and will impact infrastructure and will impact CBD and I don't think anybody's got a real handle on it yet. Um, yeah I'd like all those people who prior to COVID were extolling the virtues of eight square metres per person to come <laughs> forward now and apologise uh, because really that 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 notion of asking people to work in a space of, you know, four by two or something like that, you know, very little personal space, to spend a long time commuting at your own cost uh, for the privilege of doing that was just idiotic. I never understood it at the time. Mm. I don't understand it now. It's like the last gasp of industrial era people management. And, but instead of a factory assembly line of people in their Jackie Hose, you know, shoulder to shoulder, mm. we were sitting in cubicles shoulder to shoulder with no amenity. No personal photos on your desk and, and this mm. sort of thing. So where are those experts now, Matt? Where, let's, <laughs> let's go. You we'll should talk to them and say, how could you have got this so badly wrong? We'll try and get them onto the shovel, yeah. see, what they, see what they have to say for themselves. But the theme for, for this year for the shovel is resilience of, of Brisbane or, or was coined by Ben Weaver from Youth of Urban, resilience. I think, he's, I think it's great. I think he said it tongue-in-cheek, but I've just kind of taken it. Ah. It's our badge for the year. But when we talk about resilience, that you, we usually focus on specific industries, specific sectors. What we rarely discuss is geographical resilience, which is the kind of thing you're alluding Mm. to, the suburbs. And we may have already covered this to a certain extent, but I just wanted to unpick it a little bit further. So when we talk about geographical resilience and geographical diversity, why isn't that part of the conversation normally? Uh, I don't know, and I suppose that's a challenge ahead, is to get us to think a little more differently. That we have, I guess, imprinted in our thinking this idea of the Emerald City, of tall towers of commerce and activity and outlying areas of low density housing and a long commuting model with dormitories and all the rest. So I don't know how much of that is fiction. We do know from the evidence that only one in 10 of all jobs are in the city centre and nine in 10, or eight or nine in 10, depending on how you draw the boundaries, are actually in the suburbs anyway. So the idea of being geographically resilient is to, I guess, just simply avoid putting all of your eggs into the one basket. And when it comes to investing in infrastructure, that means ensuring that a dispersed economic model can thrive because it has access to the same quality of infrastructure, whether that's social infrastructure, whether that's digital infrastructure, whether it's built form or whether it's transit related, uh, as, say, the inner city. Then if you have a particular problem geographically, we had the 2011 floods knocked out the CBD, for example, right? It didn't knock out a whole bunch of suburban locations. Fast forward into the future, 
if the prognosis for climate change is as bad as people are saying, things like floods and whatever could become more common, what's our plan B? Mm. We're going to still be very reliant on the CBD, or do we say we, we build up alternative centres like like uh, Chermside becomes a, a mini uh, CBD or Springwood perhaps or Cleveland or wherever. Sydney are doing that now with their three cities or four mm. cities plan. So I think that's what we're talking about in terms of geographic resilience and also recognising that we are part of a region which extends from mm. northern New South Wales out to Toowoomba and up probably to you know, near Noosa mm. and that there are different centres within that region that enjoy vastly differing levels of support in terms of public policy, public infrastructure support and all the rest of it. And yet if we were to be resilient as a region, it would make sense to actually ensure that that level of access is a little bit more equal. Yeah. Now, we talked about it, you know, prior to starting the podcast about when we talk about the Olympics. You know, your first comment to me was, it's too early to tell what the impact of the Olympics is going to be. But going back to your comment about we've got to realise that we're a region, it's not just Brisbane, it's not just CBD, there is a wider region. Were you happy with the level of conversation that's been surrounding the Olympics, that it's been referred to as a regional Olympics, that we talk about South East Queensland? Do you think do you think that's rhetoric or do you think that's actually really what will happen and therefore that you know the suburbs and the wider region can get a lot of benefit out of an Olympic Games in 2032? Or do you think it's all rhetoric at this point? No, I think that generally is the intent that it's a region-wide opportunity. I knew Graham Quirk pretty well who led uh, the bid. I'm pretty sure that was his intent. I know uh, the current Lord Mayor, Adrian Schrinner, uh, well enough to know that he's genuinely uh, looking at this as a region-wide opportunity. And I think state and federal governments are probably doing the same. So there is a there is a sensational opportunity for us to realise what's going on and to get this right. There's also the classic, the Australian form guide, which is, you know, to do the wrong thing at the wrong time for the wrong reason. We're very good at that. You've only got to look back 200 years. If anything, we've been consistent, Matt. So I've got my reservations, if you like, about some of this stuff around fast rail. If what they intend for that is to turn places like Caloundra, the Sunshine Coast, into a dormitory where the jobs are in the city centre of Brisbane, and we're building fast rail infrastructure for people to commute to their work from the Sunshine Coast. So I just don't think that makes a heck of a lot of sense. Or the other one is, I think, Toowoomba Fast mm. Rail. I, I think the last time I looked, there were 30 people, three zero people only, who lived in Toowoomba but worked in the inner city of Brisbane. So what's going to change if we spend billions of dollars on a mm. fast rail network? If it means more economic opportunity for centres like Toowoomba, that perhaps people are commuting the other way to work, then that wouldn't be such a bad thing. Mm. Uh, but, yeah, as I said, we, we've tended to make some horrible mistakes with big-ticket infrastructure uh, in this country. I listened to a podcast recently with um, Ed Glazer from Harvard, and, you know, in the US they're talking about spending trillions of dollars yeah, under Biden's plan, money, yeah. and um, he has some very real reservations about uh, some of the boondoggle projects that are mm. being proposed. You know, his view is that commuter rail is a, is a notion that suited more 19th, 20th century model of you know, everyone commuting to the same place at the same time and then returning home. Mm. Uh, similarly, that we're now much more inclined to uh, have a different route every day and a different timetable every day based on what we need to do every day. And that's really hard to make public transport work around mm. that sort of mobility. So where is our investment? This is what Alan Burge from MIT would say. Where is our investment in understanding how autonomous electric vehicles can serve a region-wide transport infrastructure network. We've got the road network already there. Mm. What sort of mobility solutions can be deployed to make use of the existing infrastructure 
that supports the drift towards more suburban mm. and regional jobs. What does that look like? Who's planning for it? I don't think DTMR have a single person in there. Uh, if they are planning this, I'd love to meet them. I really would. To look at the future of uh, autonomous electric vehicles or mm. autonomous lanes uh, on our highways and so on. I mean, we need to be thinking about other things as well. Yeah, and well, that comes into the whole discussion about mobility as a service. But just taking that uh, on that thing on the the infrastructure side, it's been well discussed, and I don't know if there's any data supporting these kind of statements. But when we do the big investment on the infrastructure, and we build the toll roads, and we build stuff like Brisbane Metro, and we build stuff like Cross River Rail, and do the upgrades to to the Bruce Highway. Uh, like the Bruce Highway upgrades have been going for as, for as far as I recall, as long as I've been in Brisbane, which is more than a decade now. We always seem to be building this kind of infrastructure to solve a problem that may have been identified 10 to 15 years ago. Yeah. So we're constantly trying to catch, catch up. up. Yeah. So you know, my view was that we always the, the 2032 Olympics potentially gives us the idea to get ahead because we're, we're probably we're always looking back too much. We're not necessarily planning for the future, mm. which is bizarre in an industry where we always plan for the best, but usually the worst outcome happens. Mm. So how can we fund these opportunities better and how can we focus on where we should be spending the kind of money? And and like looking at the faster rail option, as you, as you, know, as you mentioned, you know, you know, there's plenty of discussions about having faster rail everywhere, but should we be looking at faster rail in a couple of key locations to unlock the kind of resilience options we're talking about? The catch-up, it's also the history of Australia, isn't it? Yeah. I, I flagged that same question with Craig Chamello, one of the Suburban Futures events recently, and he said, well... He said, we've been playing catch-up since Arthur Phillip and the first fleet landed. So <laughs> I thought, well, that's probably true. The challenge we've got, I think, and this won't make me popular uh, with many in the industry. I've never stopped you before, Ross. So. No, well, here we go again. <laughs> um, is that I think we've been growing too fast. The forecast, so pre-COVID, the forecast population growth for Brisbane, Sydney and Melbourne, for all centres, roughly the same, was close to growing by one third, growing by a third in the space of 15 years. So it's taken us 150, 200 years, whatever it is, to get to this point. We're about to grow by a third in 15 years. That rate of growth is comparable to the Beijings and Shanghais of the world. Mm. And they do things differently, let's just say. Mm. right? We're not a communist nation. Uh, we have you know, engineering standards, environmental concerns, uh, private property rights, a whole bunch of reasons we can't just you know, slam the accelerator pedal down in the same way. That rate of growth also exceeds many of the cities we like to benchmark ourselves with, whether that's across Europe uh, or the US. Cities with high standards of living, with high quality of life, do not have uh, growth rates of some 30%. But they're also uh, more established than we are. As well, uh, some of them are, some of them aren't. Yeah. Okay? Some of them are, some of them aren't. So that rate of growth, I think, makes it even harder to keep up with the infrastructure. So, I mean, I just wrote a piece recently and thought, you know, well, you know, next time someone says we've had to have a million more people into South East Queensland, I know a lot of people in the industry give a bit of a cheer. But that equates to another six to 700,000 cars on the road. Unless you prohibit every new person arriving from having a car, that is the mathematical consequence of that extra million people. What are we going to do about that? Hmm. Or the extra million people will require four hospitals the size of the PA, which is about 1,000 beds. Where are they going to go? And what's our plan for that? Hmm. So I, I guess all I'm saying is we can plan to match our infrastructure with our rates of growth so that we maintain the same standard of living, the same quality of life. Mm. But if we don't, we will fall further behind. And I don't think even the Olympics is going to stop that from happening. Mm. Yeah, I suppose that's the you know, that's the dichotomy, isn't it, is that everyone's pushing on this population growth, you know, whether it's interstate or whether it's in international migration. Um, but 
we're not matching it in terms of our plan for, for development and infrastructure and everything else. It's kind of, they're almost like two speed systems that are operating completely independent of each other rather than actually joining them together yeah. and said, if this happens, what does this look like? Yeah, exactly. Well, thank you very much for your time, Ross. It's, as usual, it's been a thought-provoking and eye-opening discussion. And just keep being honest in the industry. That's All what right. you're good and at. And you too. Thanks All for right. the opportunity. The Shovel is a podcast for Property Leaders Brisbane and is kindly recorded and produced by BBS Communications Group. If you've enjoyed The Shovel, please subscribe, review and share to help spread the word. Music